0: God, we're so thankful that we do not make Jesus the center of your church, but that he already is. God, we gather this morning, and Lord, we want to first confess that there are times in which we don't put Jesus at the center. We push him to the periphery. We have other things that become the core. And yet, God, as a people at Pennington Park Church, we desperately want to worship Jesus because he is the supreme and preeminent one. God, I pray that you would Help us to understand this passage, what this means practically for us as a church here in this time period. Lord, I pray for an openness today. I pray for a humility to receive from you. God, I pray that you would guard us against defensiveness, but Lord, that you would help us to see areas in our own lives that we need to live these verses out in a more consistent way. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, Brett McCracken, in uh, an article that came out in the Gospel Coalition a few years years ago, um, says this about the church. says that churches that attempt to accommodate the moving target needs of individual spiritual quests are not doing anyone a favor. By shifting the focus away from the fixed point of Jesus to the fickle, frequently diverging paths of individual churchgoers, Churches lose their bearings and become inherently unstable. When a church becomes less about the demands of Scripture on individuals and more about the demands of individuals on the church to fit their preferences, favored music style, ideal sermon length, brand of coffee, and so on, it loses its power to transform us and subvert our idols. It becomes a commodity to be shopped for, consumed, and then abandoned, When another shinier, trendier, more relevant option appears. Look, in a time in which the church can so easily become a place uh, that puts our preferences and our opinions and our comforts and even our own rights as the main thing, Colossians has been so helpful for us to be reminded of what the main thing actually is in the church. The main thing is Jesus, or as Brett McCracken puts it, Jesus is the fixed point in the church. And I know that we we would all believe that theologically, and yet there are times in which we kind of move Jesus off to the side and we tend to put something else there. So in this passage this morning, in verses 15 through 17, Paul provides three marks or three characteristics of a Jesus-centered church. How do you know when you're keeping Jesus, the main, the main one, the main thing? Now, before we look at the first mark, I do want to say that each of these has a, a corporate aim to it, that each of these have to do with the people of God and what we do together when we are gathered. And yet, each of these has uh, individual implications. In other words, you, you can't do publicly what you're not doing privately and personally, And what we've seen so far in Colossians chapter 3 is that Paul has been explaining what it looks like to seek the things that are above. In verses 5 through 14, Paul has been calling us to put off the grave clothes of the old man and to put on the grace clothes of the new man. Paul's just continuing on with that, describing what do the people of God look like, especially when they are gathered together. And here are three marks. Here's the the first one here in verse 15, is that the peace of Christ governs. The peace of Christ governs. Now, we're looking at verse 15, and just to state the obvious, this is following verse 14. This is not a brand new section. And so this harmonious unity in verse 14 is the fuel for allowing peace to reign in our relationships. In other words, there is an unbreakable link between this harmonious love and the unifying peace that should be experienced among the people of God you can't have one without the other you can't claim to love others and not experience this peace paul makes this link elsewhere in ephesians chapter 4 verses 2 and 3 he says with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace Okay, now we know that peace is uh, an important aspect of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we even see uh, the world around us that, that wants to experience peace. You ask anybody in your neighborhood, your friends, anybody in this world, they would say, I want to have peace. But what is peace? Well, what does Paul mean here about the peace that, that needs to rule in our hearts? Well, there are three features about three aspects of peace just in this verse alone that helps us to better understand what Paul means. The first one here is that this is a divine peace. You notice that here, this is the peace of Christ or the peace from Christ, that Jesus is the source of it and Jesus wants to give it generously. That's what he said in John 14, verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And yet what we need to understand this morning is that biblical peace is drastically different than a worldly peace, that the peace that Jesus offers us is not a peace that is rooted in our feelings. Okay, I hear this from time to time when, when someone is making a, a difficult decision and, and they make their, their choice and you ask them, well, how did you know that was the right decision? Sometimes what you'll hear is they say that I had a feeling of peace about it. There was something within me that, 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 you know, made me feel a certain way that pointed me in the right direction, and yet that's not a biblical category for peace, that peace is not based on our feelings throughout the scriptures. Another thing that you might hear is that uh, peace is circumstantial, that you'll experience this peace uh, when you have, um, when you don't have any difficulties, when there's an absence of, of hardship or things that, that, that are stretching Now, we would all claim that Jesus uh, had peace. In fact, Jesus is peace, Ephesians 2.14. And yet, do you remember what he experienced the night before he was crucified? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was in agony, sweating drops of blood. So his circumstances were not peaceful, and yet he had a peace within his own heart. See, biblical peace is not feelings-based. It's not dependent on our circumstances, Biblical peace is a condition of the heart. It is harmony that's experienced with God vertically that then leads to a horizontal harmony with others. And biblical peace is experienced when your heart is actively trusting in the promises of God in the midst of difficult circumstances. It's when you're declaring, I I want God's presence, I want God even more than I want this hard situation to go away in my life. And we see this relationship between trusting in God and peace all throughout Scripture. Let me give you one example. Isaiah chapter 26 verse 3 says that you keep him in perfect peace whose mind stays on you because he trusts in you. See, peace is just on the other side of our trust and our dependency upon God. This is important because this divine peace, this vertical peace that we have with God, then impacts our horizontal peace with one another. But what we need to understand about this divine peace is that before God saved us in Jesus, we did not have peace with God. We were enemies with God. We were actually at war with God, lost in our sin. And each of us had this massive problem with sin, this this massive issue of this separation with God. And yet God, who is rich in mercy, didn't just leave us in our sin, but he has this amazing rescue plan centered on the person and work of Jesus. And Romans 5.1 actually says that our faith justifies us, so now we can have peace with God. So when God picked us up out of the pit of darkness, out of the, the pit of despair and our own sin, and gave us the gift of faith in Jesus, we now have peace with God. Well, before I go any further, I just want to say, if, if you're here this morning and, and you're an unbeliever, maybe you're, you're listening online and you're an unbeliever, first of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in. But you need to know this morning that God wants to give you this peace, this biblical divine peace that's different than what the world has to offer. And yet the, re- the reality is, is that you'll never experience this peace until you come to faith in Jesus and turn from your sin. That at best, you might experience a temporary happiness, but it won't last. And until you come to faith in Jesus, you're, you're going to be on this journey, this endless chase of going from one thing to another, looking for peace, looking for satisfaction, and yet nothing truly does. And so if you're an unbeliever, you might be even here today or tuning in looking for peace. Maybe you wouldn't articulate it that way, and you're searching for something, and yet I've got good news for you, that that search and that journey could end right here, right today. If you place your faith in Jesus, you can have peace with God. It's by understanding that Jesus Christ got up on a cross, paid your penalty, paid for your sins, and removed this chasm between the sinful humanity and a holy God through Jesus. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you're not only forgiven, but you can have peace with God. Look, our desire is that you make that decision today, to to trust in Jesus and to stop chasing for peace outside of Christ. Because Jesus experienced our penalty, we can experience his peace. I love Ephesians 2.14. It just very explicitly calls Jesus peace. He says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And if you're a follower of Jesus, the way that God delivers his peace to us is not by bringing resolution to our challenging circumstances. It's not by filling our hearts with a warm, fuzzy feeling. The way that God delivers his peace to us is by giving us himself. It's by filling us with his presence. And our vertical peace with God impacts our horizontal peace with one another, which leads us to the second aspect of peace that Paul uh, describes here, and that is a ruling peace. That Paul calls for this peace that we have with God, not just to be experienced in our hearts, but it needs to do something in our lives. It needs to rule in our hearts. And letting the the peace of Christ rule means that it becomes the controlling force in our lives. Listen to Philippians uh, 4, 7 Paul says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so listen to how active this peace that we have with God is. It it guards our hearts, but it also governs our hearts. In fact, I love this Greek word for rule. It actually refers to an umpire or a referee at an athletic event that this peace of God, it's, it's supposed to be the decisive factor in the midst of a contested situation and must govern our hearts. Now, I, I know what it's like to be a referee. I played basketball in college at Cedarville University, and, and during the summers, the players had to come back on campus and, and referee the high school games uh, because they had summer camps at, at, at the university. And so I remember being a referee and kind of feeling the heat of that, trying to make difficult decisions, and let me tell you, that was some of the best uh, preparation for becoming a pastor and, uh, and even becoming a husband and a father at times. But the referee's job is to identify when a violation takes place and to ensure that the game proceeds in harmony with the rules That's what Paul is is saying about what the peace of God should do in our hearts. It should be the referee. It should be this factor that is given preference over competing concerns and interests. And yet the reality is, is that there are times in our lives, even as followers of Jesus, in which the umpire in our hearts is not the peace of Christ. It's something else. That sometimes what, what comes into our hearts and, and becomes this powerful decisive factor in how we relate to one another uh, is easily our own opinions, it's our own preferences, it's our own comforts, it's at times our own rights. And I just want to ask you this question this morning, just just out of love, out of being your shepherd today, has that been true of you in your heart over the last couple of months? When you think about what's ruling in your heart, has it been the peace of Christ or has it been something else? In other words, would, would you describe yourself as being a, a peacemaker, a peacekeeper, or, or being a pot stirrer over the last couple of months? I'm like, just to maybe make this even more practical, look, over the last couple of months, our, our church has had to make a lot of tough decisions. And the reality is is that we are not experts in the medical world, in the scientific world, in the political world, in the educational world, and the list goes on and on. And we've made decisions out of prayer, out of discussion, out of asking for advice from others, and we know that some of the decisions that we've made has not made everybody happy. We know that the date to reopen in person was for some too early, and for others it was too late. We know that some of the precautions that we have, some of these guidelines with the aim of keeping us safe and healthy was for some too much and for others not enough. And and the list kind of goes on and on. And look, the the issue is is not disagreements, right? The, The call here is not uniformity. The call is unity. And I've been in pastoral ministry for over 10 years. I know that disagreements it is kind of part of what it means to be a family of the church of God. That's going to happen. We can have differing opinions, but what I'm more pastorally concerned about is how the disagreements are handled, how they're voiced, to whom they are voiced, and where they're voiced, and when they are voiced, and what that's revealing in the heart. See, we can, we can debate the mask mandate all we want, and that, that's fine. We can have differing opinions on that. But again, what I'm more concerned about is what's in the heart that's driving it? What's motivating it? And is it the peace of Christ that's ruling there, or, or is it something else? And I just, I just wonder, if, if there has been grumbling, if there has been complaining, if there has been divisive chatter, what that's revealing is that the peace of Christ isn't ruling and that there's something else. And, and even that there, there has been maybe moments where you might have been putting on the wrong clothes spiritually. You might be putting on the grave clothes that Paul mentioned in verse 5 and verse 8 instead of the grace clothes in verses 12 through 15. And look, I'm saying this in hopefully the most loving way possible. I'm hoping and I'm praying that maybe God is using this in this moment for you to hear Colossians 3.15 and not allow your heart maybe to become defensive right now or to come up with arguments here, but to receive and ask yourself the question, is the peace of Christ ruling in my heart during this season? But church, we have an unbelievable opportunity to display this bond of peace that Christ purchased for us that even when we have disagreements, we can be unified when this peace actually governs our heart and directs how we handle disagreements. But the Bible is clear here. We are to live a life of peace. James 3.18 says that we are to have a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace. Hebrews 12.14 says that we are to strive for peace with everyone, Second Corinthians 13.11 says we are to agree with one another and live in peace. Romans 14.19 says we are to pursue what makes for peace. Romans 12.18 says if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So what does God want? God longs for his people to live with one another with peace, to allow that to govern how we interact with each other this takes us to the third aspect of peace here. It's not just a divine peace, it's not just a ruling peace, but it's also a unifying peace. If you notice here in the text, after Paul lays this command to letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, he then directly says, to which indeed you were called in one body. And why does Paul bring up the one body here? Where is this coming from? Well, notice Paul is connecting this peace which then leads to oneness, that we have this peace that Christ has purchased for us, and the result of that peace is unity. Again, not uniformity, but unity. I actually appreciate how the NIV translate this verse because it makes the connection clear. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. So belonging to Pennington Park Church Uh, is is for you to be enabled to pursue unity as we live with peace with one another. You belong here not because it's the closest church to your house. You belong here not because you you like the music volume the best or because your friends are here. All, All those things might be true, but biblically you belong here so that we might pursue peace with one another and live in unity. Like This peace is is very different than how the world defines peace. Yet Paul's point here is when you have peace with God vertically, he gives you his peace. And when you take that and allow that to govern your relationships horizontally, the byproduct is unity. So this is the first mark of keeping Jesus central, keeping him at the core. But secondly here in verse 16, we also have the word of Christ, which saturates the people of God. The word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. Now, the word of Christ does not just mean the specific words that Jesus used when he was on the earth, like the Sermon on the Mount or his personal interactions with like, the woman at the well. It, of course, includes that. But this is the word that centers on Jesus' life his ministry, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's the word of the gospel. It's the word that magnifies the preeminence of Jesus. And your life individually and our lives corporately as we gather should be saturated with the word of Christ. I love this word. This, uh, this word dwell literally means to be at home. The call here is for the word of Christ to find a home within us and to take up personal, permanent residence in our lives and to be the center of our lives. There's a picture for what we are to do with the word of God. It reminds me of early on in our marriage, uh, Lindsay uh, really wanted a dog. And, and I didn't want to say no, and I didn't want to say yes. And so uh, oftentimes we would find ourselves at the pet store at the mall, and just for, you know, 30 minutes at a time, just kind of play around with the puppies and, and pet them, kind of scratch that itch, pun intended. And, and there, there were moments in which we walked out of there being like, wow, I'm so glad that we're not taking a dog home to take up, you know, permanent residence in our home. You know, we don't have to spend the money with the dog food and the, and the vet visits. We don't have to have our every room in our house smelling like a dog and cleaning up after the mess of the dog and all that. And it was great. But if you asked us, hey, Chris, uh, are, are, you, are you a dog person? Are you and Lindsay dog people? We'd say, yeah, yeah, we like dogs. You know, we're, we're definitely not cat people. So, of course, we are dog people. And yet a few years into our marriage, we finally took a dog home Named him Charlie, and that's when we really experienced what it's like to be dog people. That's when the commitment was on another level. That's when having this dog impacted every area of our lives. I mean, even figuring out how to travel, we had to figure out what to do with this dog, and, and the list goes on and on. And the point is, is that there is a difference between visiting something for 30 minutes in a given week and something actually taking up permanent residence in your life. And the calling here is for us who are Jesus people, not just to like Jesus and to spend 30 minutes with the words of Jesus, but to have the word of Christ take up permanent residence in every room of our lives. Look, I want you to hear me this morning. that This is not a call just to read the Bible more. That having the word of Christ dwell in you does impact how much time you spend. But this idea of the word of Christ saturating your life has to do with your surrendering posture to it. It it involves the way that you read it, the way that, that you approach the text as if this has the authority for how you live your life, that this shapes every room in your life. Your finances, your relationships, who you are in the workplace, what you watch on the internet and on the TV, the words that you use, your, your social media presence, how you think about the events going on in our country, all of those things need to be shaped by the word of God. And so, of course, that's going to impact how much time you spend with it. And we want the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. Now, Paul is helpful here because he explains how the word of Christ can dwell richly in the church. He gives us two modes here. And number one, it's with the teaching, and he includes admonishing in there, but he also includes the singing. Now, teaching here is the positive presentation of biblical truth with clarity. Admonishing, though, has to do with providing warning or providing kind of, hey, here are the dangers here if you stray from the truth. And both are needed uh, from the pulpit. This is one of the reasons why one of our core values at our church is to be driven by the Bible, that we believe that the Word of God is the authority for how we are to live our lives as individuals and corporately as a church. And if you've been part of our church for a short period of time, you'll know that the Bible is central not just when we gather, but it's in every ministry of our church because we believe that the Word does. The work. Now, secondly here, the singing. This is another way the Word of Christ dwells uh, with his people. But Paul here doesn't just say any kind of singing, but he provides examples. He says, when you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the Word of Christ can dwell in you richly. The psalms here, of course, refer to the Old Testament psalms, where, especially in the early church, they would take some of those and turn it into uh, songs. Hymns refer to not how we typically think of like a 1950s hymnal, of course, but these had to do with kind of these festive songs that give praise to God. And then you have spiritual songs, which could be translated as songs from the Spirit. It's kind of a hard phrase to understand what this really means. Some believe this to refer to kind of spontaneous or prompted by the Spirit singing or, or singing from the heart. But the point here is is not the method, it's not the form, but it's the content. It's singing songs that are based upon Jesus and these rich theological truths. And I think Paul lists a diversity of singing here because it creates wonderful opportunities for us to live out verses 12 through 15, right? Because not every one of us will enjoy every song that we sing. Tim does a, a wonderful job, you know, not just picking Chris Tomlin songs every single time that we sing, but there's a diversity of song selection. And that gives us a great opportunity to be compassionate, to be kind, to be humble with one another, bearing with one another, because one song might bless you and another song might bless someone else. But maybe not all of them blesses all of us in the same way. And Paul is calling us again for unity. But the point here by Paul, and I think this is a good reminder for us, What we sing is really important, that what we sing is, it's not just the the pregame warm-up for the main meal, the preaching, right? What we sing shapes us. I love how Eugene Peterson talks about the way that that we are to sing is not being driven by our feelings. He, He says this, we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. That worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. So when you come into this place ready to sing, that your engagement is not based on what you feel like in that particular day or that particular morning, but we are using our time of singing to draw our hearts upward towards the supremacy of Jesus in the hopes that that impacts your affections and your desires for Jesus. That singing is a powerful way to connect what is true up here with our desires and our affections in our hearts. Like That's why we're commanded to sing. That as you sing, even with mass song, when you sing, you are admonishing the people around you as you belt out this truth to believe it deep within your hearts. Look, so how do you know when a church is keeping the main one, the main thing? Well, it's when the focus is on Christ. Paul has been hammering the preeminence of Jesus all throughout this letter. But look, Paul's challenge for us, and when we get to these verses, it's not for the preeminence of Jesus just to be this cold, abstract truth that's buried somewhere in the church website. But this truth is to live. It has feet to it. It impacts what we do when we gather together. The church of Jesus Christ keeping the main one, the main thing, has a preoccupation with Jesus and his glory when we gather. Look, there is a wonderful but divine and mysterious dialogue that takes place when the people of God are teaching and singing the word of God. That's when the spirit of God shapes us into the image of the son of God. And it's when the word of Christ dwells in us. This takes us to our third and last mark of a church that's keeping the main one the main thing. Verse 17, it's when the name of Christ motivates. The name of Christ literally impacts every aspect of our lives. Verse 17 is somewhat of a closing verse or a summary verse of this main body of Paul's letter, which began in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. We have to remember Paul is, is, has been addressing a very specific false teaching at the, at the church of Colossae. It was this philosophy of this Jesus and mentality. Jesus was great, but he's not enough. You can almost think about it as if this church in Colossae had these different boxes or these different categories for the different aspects of their lives. They kind of compartmentalize things. And so for the salvation box, uh, Jesus was central there but he wasn't preeminent enough for him to be uh, the center of all the other boxes in their lives, for their relationships and their philosophies and their satisfaction. And so they added on to Jesus. So when you get to verse 17, this is Paul's strong correction that no matter what you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of Christ, no matter what box, no matter what compartment of your life, you're being motivated by the name and person of Christ. So Paul is against compartmentalizing Jesus. He's too big for that. But understanding what this means practically, doing everything in the name of Jesus does not simply mean uttering Jesus's name before, during, and after a particular activity. That would be actually quite strange in some of the activities that we do. But Paul means here to live in concert with the nature and the character of Christ. It's to understand that as a Christ follower, you represent Jesus to those around you. And so we can't reduce Jesus to just one area of our lives, to just church or to just a small group or just our our devotions. But living for the name of Jesus impacts who we are in the workplace, our interactions with others, and every area of our lives. That as we live for an audience of one, Jesus is our motivation. Look, as I close today, uh, one of the, the clearest results in letting the peace of Christ govern, letting the word of Christ saturate, and letting the name of Christ motivate is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. You probably noticed that Paul kind of sprinkles this idea of giving gratitude or giving thanks all throughout these three verses. He says it at the end of verse 15, at the end of verse 16, and at the end of verse 17. Why? Why does Paul emphasize giving thanks? It's because when you are filled up with Jesus, what spills out of you should be gratitude. And conversely, if you're filled up with yourself, What spills out of you will be things listed in verse 5 and verse 8 and things of the flesh. That Thanksgiving becomes this wonderful thermometer to determine the health of a local church. That a people of God who are are, are lacking gratitude, that might be evidence of, of hearts that are growing cold to the Lord. And yet expressing thanks, expressing our gratitude with God, shapes the people of God. Just a reminder that you can't do publicly or you can't do corporately what you're not doing personally and privately. So I wonder this morning, how how is the Lord speaking to you today? What's he speaking to you about in regards to his peace ruling in your heart, in regards to the word of Christ dwelling, and in terms of the name of Christ motivating how you live? It's a good reminder that as we gather every single week, we're reminding each other that in order to, to keep Jesus the main thing in our church, to keep him central, we need each and every one of us to be living as Jesus being the core of our lives Monday through Saturday, even as we come in here on Sundays, that we need each other. So let me pray together as we prepare our hearts to sing uh, this last song together. God, I pray that, Lord, as Pennington Park, as we just continue to grow, as we continue to mature, or as we continue to look more and more like a church that is centered upon Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would reveal those areas where he's not central. Lord, reveal areas of perhaps maybe even sin in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would would help us, God, to be so filled up with Jesus, to be so enamored with his beauty and his power. God, that that impacts the way that we relate to one another. God, I pray that our church would be a type of community where the, the watching world, thinks that we're strange because of how unified we are, that the watching world looks at us and they, they want what we have in Jesus because it's otherworldly. And God, we pray that your spirit would continue to do that kind of work within us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.